Our passage is really Jeremiah 46 to 51. We read from 51, and we're going to do our best to summarize the entirety of this book. We started walking through the book of Jeremiah on May 2nd, and it's a long book. Just on a personal note, I have just come through in my personal devotional Bible reading, not reading to study or uh, reading to teach or anything like that, just personal Bible reading. I've just come through the book of Jeremiah. And this last year, I'm using the Machane Bible reading plan. And so uh, this is a picture of Robert Murray Machane. He came up with this Bible reading plan. And I know it's kind of dark. That's a screenshot uh, from the app that I use, the ESV app. And uh, if you look at the day that I'm on, taken earlier this week, you'll notice that I'm about 10 days behind on my Bible reading for the year. Uh, Using the Machane Bible reading plan, you go through the New Testament twice, the book of Psalms twice in a year, and the Old Testament once. And so I got a little bit of catching up to do. And I say that to you to say it's okay to fall behind in your Bible reading plan. But you really should have a Bible reading plan. Otherwise, you don't know that you're behind and you don't realize that you're not Uh, reading God's word consistently, and so it's good for me to know I'm about 10 days behind, and I need to catch up and stay on track with this plan. I also want to let you know that next year in 2022, I've stolen an idea from my pastor, David Evans. He's sitting over here, and we are going to, as a church, read through the New Testament together next year in 2022. Uh, Pastor Dave did this at FBC Crane recently. They read through the New Testament in a calendar year. There's 260 chapters. If you divide that by 52 weeks, you get five chapters a week. If you read five chapters of the New Testament every week, you make it through the New Testament in a year. And all of the sermons that we preach next year, 2022, are going to come from that reading plan taking us through the New Testament. We're not going to try to preach all five chapters on a Sunday, but the passages that we study and that we look about on Sundays and Wednesdays are going to come from that five-chapter window. And so I'm sharing that with you now, and I will share it with you again throughout the year so that as you think about 2022 and what Bible reading plan you may want to pick, uh, I'm challenging you and I'm encouraging you to at least read through the New Testament with us next year. That's going to be the guide for our study on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. But I can confirm, having just come through Jeremiah, this is a long, long, long book. And there's parts of Jeremiah where you just want to say, Jeremiah, give me the short version. Like, just, you got a lot of words here, and you're saying really good things, but you could say really good things in fewer words. But that's not how he writes. That's not how the Holy Spirit inspired him. It's the longest book in the Bible, word for word. And this last section is an interesting section, Jeremiah 46 to 51. If you were here last week, you know we looked at Jeremiah 44. If you look in your Bible, Jeremiah 45 is a very short chapter directed to Baruch, Jeremiah's friend. And then 46 to 51 all go together. That's what we're talking about this morning. And then 52 at the end is one final description of the fall of Jerusalem. And it's a second description. He's already talked about that in the book, and so we're not going to revisit that again. We referenced it when we talked about the fall of Jerusalem the first time. We're looking at this group of chapters, Jeremiah 46 to 51, that contains 10 oracles of woe 
directed to the nations around Israel and Judah. And to get our bearings on this section of chapters, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, where the Lord consecrated and called Jeremiah to be a, quote, this is what God said, a prophet to the nations, somebody who would raise up kingdoms and tear down kingdoms with the very speaking of God's word. So I'll put this up on the screen, Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So right from the beginning, God told Jeremiah, I'm going to use you to deliver a message to the nations. Now, if you work your way all the way through this long book, all Jeremiah does is stay in and around Jerusalem and talk about Judah in Jerusalem. And you get to the end of the book and you're saying, hey, what about that nations part? What about those kingdoms and all that other stuff that God promised to do through Jeremiah? Well, that comes into play in this final section. Jeremiah 46 to 51 contains 10 oracles of woe for the nations around Israel. And I've listed them out for you. Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, Kedar and Hazor, which are nomadic tribes, Elam, which eventually sort of became part of the Persian Empire, and Babylon. Ten nations, ten oracles of woe, oracles of judgment, oracles of doom. This is bad news. This is not gospel, but this is bad news for these nations. And we have no idea, truth be told, we have no idea how Jeremiah got all of these messages to the nations. We do know how the oracle of woe for Babylon was delivered to Babylon. And we read about that just a moment ago. The longest oracle of woe was directed to the Babylonians. And a man named Sariah delivered that message in dramatic fashion. So if you've come this far in Jeremiah, you know that he's got a flair for the dramatic. And he's what you might call not a prop comedian, but a prop preacher. He likes to use object lessons that people can see and touch. And so we've talked about a lot of those. We've talked, we didn't look at the passage, but we've referenced the ruined loincloth that he bought and then buried in the Euphrates River. We talked about the yoke that he had built for his shoulders that was then smashed on the ground as an object lesson. We talked about the Bach book, the little pitcher with the skinny neck and the arm, and the water would pour out of it. He bought it brand new at the potter's house and then he smashed it on the ground at the pot shirt gate. We've talked about all sorts of object lessons in this book. Ron preached a a sermon on a real estate transaction as the Babylonians were besieging Jerusalem. Jeremiah buys a field and it's an object lesson for the people about not what God's gonna do today, but what he would do in the future. So here's one more object lesson. Jeremiah talks to Sariah who's on his way to Babylon and he says, listen, I'm gonna write this down. You're gonna take it with you. And when you get to Babylon, I want you to stand up and read it out loud for all the people to hear. Then I want you to tie this book or this scroll or this document, tie it to a rock, throw the rock in the river, and watch it sink to the bottom. And it's a lesson for all of the people that Babylon, mighty, powerful, conquering, glorious Babylon, 
is going to sink like a rock. It's the same basic message for all of these nations in Jeremiah 46 to 51. They are oracles of woe. And as we study these things, it points us to the big idea that's very simple and very important, something that people struggle with today in our context in the United States of America. God is just and God is righteous in his dealings with the nations. As the Lord God interacts with the nations, the peoples of this earth, he is always just and he is always righteous. If you paid attention to the uh, paid attention to the last couple of weeks, you know that foreign policy is a tricky thing. It's tricky for any nation. It's tricky for the United States of America. We'd all like to think we're experts on foreign policy and we know how to fix all of the problems that we see in the world, but it's really a, a difficult thing. When you're the president of the United States, you're not only the leader of this nation, but you're functionally the leader of the free world. And interacting with the world is not a simple thing. We like to sort of shout out simple solutions, but it's really not a simple thing. On the one hand, you have allies, and your allies and your friends don't always agree. And so as you engage in foreign policy in the United States, you're sort of herding cats with all these allies, trying to get everybody moving in the same direction. They don't always want to move in the same direction. you got allies, but you also have enemies, And your enemies don't always do what you want, certainly. And as you interact with your enemies, however you interact with them, there is another political party back home who is always ready to criticize whatever you do and however you do it and whenever you do it. And this just sort of plays out in American politics, back and forth, back and forth. It's a challenging thing to lead the the world superpower, the dominant nation on earth, in interacting with all the other nations. You can withdraw from the world and sort of be an isolationist, but then really bad things happen and you feel some responsibility for those things. Or you can go out and you can try to be the police for the entire world, and that just really doesn't work. There's not enough of us and there's too much world. You can try to land somewhere in the middle. When you try to land somewhere in the middle, that's where the criticism comes in. And whichever party is in power is typically, let's be honest, let's be equal opportunity offenders here, whichever party is in power is usually giving a lesson in incompetence with foreign policy. And then you've got another political party across the aisle that suddenly they're experts. They have it all figured out. They know everything that should be done. And I think it's just worth saying there's some big blunders and some big mistakes, and we've seen some of them recently. But the whole enterprise of interacting with the world when you are the dominant superpower is not a simple, straightforward thing. It's a challenging thing. So the Bible talks about foreign policy, and it talks about foreign policy of Israel and Judah as they relate to their neighbors and the Babylonians and the Persians and all the rest of them. But the Bible also talks about foreign policy from a cosmic perspective. Not just how is Israel relating to the nations or how is Babylon relating to the nations, but how is the king of kings, the creator, the Lord of hosts, how is he relating to the nations? There are a lot of people in our country who look back in the Old Testament at the way that God interacted with the nations. And we have a lot of critique and a lot of criticism for the way that the Lord God interacted with these people. 
We look back and say, well, I don't understand why he did that. I don't understand why he would do that. Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he act this way? But what Jeremiah is reminding us in Jeremiah 46 to 51 is that when the Lord God interacts with the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth, he is always just and he is always righteous. And so what I want to do is look at 46 to 51 and just give you some of the big ideas. I want to give you four truths about how the Lord God interacts with the nations, things that are true in Jeremiah's day, things that are true in our day. So here's the first truth. God promised to punish the gods of the nations. That's little g, gods of the nations. In fact, he promises to humiliate them, to bring them down, to put them in their place. In making this promise, the Lord God is not so much acknowledging the reality of all these pagan deities, so much as he is emphasizing their impotence and their inability to do anything. And I want you to see a few examples of this. Flip back to the left and look at Jeremiah 46. Jeremiah 46. Look at verse 25. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel said, Behold, I am bringing punishment on Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh in Egypt and her gods, her kings, upon Pharaoh and those who trust in them. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old. This is God essentially declaring war on the gods of Egypt. That's happened already in the Bible, right? When the Lord sent Moses to bring the people out of Egypt, he brought judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. He humiliated the gods of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh, who the Egyptians tended to look at as some incarnation of deity. The Lord brought judgment on those gods. And if you keep reading, he talks about other gods. He talks about Chemosh, and he talks about Molech. Uh, He talks about Marduk, lots of different deities. Look what he says in chapter 51, starting in verse 15. Notice the contrast between the true God and the false gods. Chapter 15 starts off talking about the Lord God. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult in the waters in the heavens. Right? His voice causes a tumult. He created with words. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Verse 17, every man is stupid without knowledge, and every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. The Lord God speaks And there's a tumult in the waters. And he looks down at the idols, the creations of the goldsmith, and he says they have no breath in them. They have no voice in them. They have no life in them. Verse 18, they're worthless. They're a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts, is his name. There's a contrast between the true God and the false gods. And the true God is promising to bring judgment and humiliation and shame on the gods of the nations. 
That would include, as we think about our context, idols made with the hand, as well as idols that you fashion in your mind and in your heart. God promises judgment on the gods of the nations. Secondly, God declares his sovereignty over the nations. He declares his sovereignty over the nations. So there's ten nations mentioned here. Some of them are what we would call superpowers. So Egypt at one time is a superpower. The Babylonians are what we would call a superpower. Uh, Some of the nations are not superpowers in the present, but they will grow into that. Elam will become the Persian Empire. They'll be a world superpower. There's also nomadic tribes, not necessarily superpowers, but Keter and Hazer. They're very formidable nomadic people that were just constantly a thorn in the side of these empires. And the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, talks about all of these nations. He lists 10 of them. He could have listed more, but he lists 10. And he declares that he is completely sovereign over all of them. Not once does he say, Here's my plan of what I hope to accomplish in this place if things go according to plan. I listened to a podcast this week talking about D-Day, the D-Day invasion, and they were talking about the weather and how fortuitous, how lucky the weather was on D-Day. And if they had gone with the original date a week or two later, it may not have gone the same way. And the historians looked back and said, man, we were really lucky that we went on that day and we didn't wait. God doesn't operate like that. He doesn't say, if the weather cooperates, I'm going to really get after the gods of Egypt. He just says, I'm going to get them. I'm going to punish them. He's sovereign over the nations. He calls himself the Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord of the armies of heaven. He calls himself the king. He calls himself the God of Israel. Look what he says in Jeremiah 51 verse 20 as an example. This is the Lord speaking to Babylon. And the Lord says to Babylon, you are my hammer. And my weapon of war, with you I break nations in pieces, with you I destroy kingdoms. That's how God thinks about the nations. They're not peers. They're not equals with him. They're not on the same level of him. He just describes them as a tool that he has the ability to pick up at his own disposal and use for his own ends. And he says to Babylon, I'm using you right now like a hammer to bring judgment on the nations. And if you keep reading this oracle of woe, he says, when I'm done using you to punish the nations, I will punish you. He's sovereign over all the kingdoms, all the nations of the earth. Thirdly, he hates the pride of the nations. He rebukes the pride of the nations. Look in the text. I'll just mention a few of these passages. Jeremiah 48, verse 26 says, Moab magnified himself against the Lord. Moab wanted to have a contest, and Moab thought that it could magnify, lift up, exalt itself against the Lord God. Look at chapter 49, verse 4. It talks about Ammon boasting in their fertile valleys and their treasure, and they find comfort in all the food that they have and all the money that they have. They're proud. They think the Lord can't touch them. Look at chapter 49, verse 16. Edom has been deceived by the pride of its heart. The pride of its heart. Chapter 49, verse 35. Elam trusts in the might of their archers. They trust in their military. They're proud in their soldiers. They think that nobody can conquer them. Look what the Lord says to Babylon, chapter 50, verse 29. She has proudly defied 
the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Not just defied the Lord, but proudly defied the Lord. The Lord hates the pride of the nations. He hates pride in any nation. If you go backwards in this story, story of the Bible, you'll eventually go backwards and bump into a king named Solomon. And the Lord was talking to Solomon at the beginning of his reign and he was giving him instructions for how he ought to lead his people and what he wanted from his people. And this is one of the things that the Lord said to Solomon, 2 Chronicles 7.14. He said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves not exalt themselves, not trust in themselves, not be prideful and arrogant and haughty and boastful, but if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. God did not say that to the United States of America. He said it to Solomon and the people of Israel. Humble yourselves. Don't be like the nations all around who are so proud and boastful and arrogant, but be a humble people. He spoke that to the nation of Israel. But there's a truth there for any nation. God doesn't want any nation to be boastful and prideful and haughty. He hates the pride of the nations. Solomon's father, David, said it like this in Psalm 18, you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. He will save a humble people. He delights in the humility of his people, but he hates the pride of the nations. And he hates the pride of his own people when they act just like the nations. One last truth from this section. God promised to bring judgment on the nations. Promised to bring judgment. I just want you to notice some of these words. I'm going to move through these quickly. Jeremiah 46 verse 10, the Lord said he would bring vengeance against the Egyptians. Chapter 47, verse 4 says, he will destroy the Philistines. 48, 21, there will be judgment for Moab. 49, 3, Ammon will go into exile. God will send them into exile. 49, 8, there will be calamity for Edom. 49, 26, Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, will be destroyed. 49, 33, Keter and Hazor will become an everlasting waste. Babylon, it's just, it's all over the oracle for Babylon. Chapter 50, verse 14, God will bring vengeance against the Babylonians. Chapter 50, verse 27, he will punish the Babylonians. Chapter 50, verse 28, there will be vengeance. Chapter 50, verse 6, punishment, vengeance, repayment. He's promising to judge this nation. 51.9, judgment. 51.11, vengeance. It just goes on and on and on. Judgment, exile, destruction. You'll be a waste. You'll go to exile. He'll repay you. He's a God of recompense. You read this section, it's somewhat overwhelming in how it describes God interacting with the nations, which I think is worth just pausing and acknowledging most Americans have absolutely no category for thinking about God in the terms used to describe him in Jeremiah 46 to 51. He's destroying all the idols, the gods of the nations. He's exercising complete sovereignty over geopolitical events. He's like your child or your grandchild moving checkers on a checkerboard. He does whatever he wants with the nations. 
He's rebuking people for their pride and he's promising judgment on the nations. I don't think it's just Americans who have a hard time with some of that. I think it's most church-going Americans who have a hard time with most of that. We just don't have a real clear sense that this is right and it's good and it's the way that God ought to interact with the nations. This kind of stuff makes people uncomfortable. It's the reason, one of the reasons, that a lot of people don't teach out of the book of Jeremiah or similar places. It's not just that Jeremiah is so dadgum long-winded. It's that you get into this book and he's really angry. He's angry with God's people and he's angry with the nations because the Lord is angry with the people and the Lord is angry with the nations. I think the root problem, the, the real reason this makes us uncomfortable is that we are poor theologians in the United States and we don't have a good sense of two doctrines. Number one, we don't have a good sense of the holiness of God. And number two, we don't have a sense of the depravity of our own hearts. In fact, we tend to get those backwards. We tend to think of God as sort of a run-of-the-mill deity, just like all the others. And we certainly don't tend to think that we are broken, wicked, sinful, rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked. Are we perfect? Oh, nobody wants to claim that they're perfect. We all make mistakes, but we don't understand the depths of our depravity. And in fact, we read the Old Testament and we look back at the way that God interacted with the the nations and we play the opposition party in the United States and we say, God, I'm not sure that was the best way to handle that. Killing all the people in the conquest? Did you really have to do that? Punishing your people with exile through Babylon? Did you really have to do it that way? The Old Testament prophets wrestled with this. Habakkuk wrestled with this. God, what are you doing? It seems like your foreign policy is tipsy-turvy, upside-down, all mixed up. The root issue is that we think far too highly of ourselves and far too lowly of God. We have no conception of his holiness. And we have no conception of our depravity. When you put those things in place and you read a passage like Jeremiah 46 to 51, it makes a lot of sense. And you say, well, of course, he's the holy God. And these are wicked nations. He's just and he's righteous as he interacts with these peoples. This is exactly the way that he ought to interact with them in light of their sin and in light of his holiness. So somehow as Americans and as American Christians, we've got to have a category for passages like this that just talk about judgment and vengeance and recompense and all the rest. But as you build that category in your mind and your heart, you also have to keep an eye to God's mercy and his grace. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger. He is kind and he is patient and he is merciful. And I want to suggest to you that even in these oracles of woe, you're pointed and you're reminded that God is merciful and gracious to the nations. And so let's talk about God's grace and his mercy. How do we see God's grace in this part of the story? Number one, God sent his people. He sent his people to be salt and light among the nations. There is a sense in which he sent them into exile to punish them. That's true. There is also a sense in which he sent them to be a blessing to the nations. And we have read it right here in the book of Jeremiah. I'll put it on the screen, Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your 
welfare. God did not want his people to go off into Babylon, into exile, and spend 70 years pouting, angry, bitter with the Babylonians. Would have been easy for them to do all of those things. God said, I'm sending you as discipline, as punishment for your rebellion, sending you to exile in Babylon, but this is what I want you to do when you get there. I want you to be the best citizens that you can possibly be. I want you to be the best neighbor that you can possibly be. Essentially, he's saying, I want you to be salt and light in a very dark and decaying place. He sent them there. Who did he send? Let me just give you a few examples. Number one, he sent prophets. Men like Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Ezekiel. Obadiah is sent just to Edom. He has nothing to say to Israel. He's only sent to Edom. God didn't have to send a prophet to the Edomites, but he did. Jonah, Nahum, sent to Nineveh, to Assyria. God didn't owe them a prophet, but he was gracious to send them a prophet. Ezekiel, carried off into exile into Babylon, lived his life out in exile. These men spoke the truth of God's word to these nations. They were not left without witness. Secondly, God sent bureaucrats. I know that's a dirty word in the United States. I mean it in the best sense of the term. He sent bureaucrats, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nehemiah. He sent these men into exile. And what did they do? They took government jobs. They worked in the government, and they were men of integrity. They were men of wisdom. Wouldn't you like to have people like that leading us? People committed to the Lord, devoted to the Lord? They weren't the majority, but they were there. They were salt and they were light for the darkness all around them. Lastly, he sent royalty. And I put that in quotes because I understand that Hadassah was an orphan when she left. But once she got where she was going, she became royalty. She became the queen of Persia. She had a tremendous influence, not only for the good of God's people, but for the good of God's uh, enemies in Persia. What a remarkable thing that God would raise up someone like this to bless his people and to bless the pagans. God sent his people, all kinds of people, to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. Do you understand that God still does that today? If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been sent into the world to be salt and to be light, to be his representative, not to grumble about how terrible everything is. God didn't want that from the exiles in Babylon, and he doesn't want it from you. He knows how terrible it is. In fact, he has a better idea of how terrible it is, better idea than you do. So he doesn't need grumblers. He needs ambassadors, people who will represent him, people who will speak for him, people who will be men and women of integrity and truth and honesty and wisdom in a dark and decaying world. God sends people. He sends them to the classroom and the university campus. He sends them to the oil patch and the bank office. He sends them into neighborhoods in Odessa, Texas and around the world to the ends of the earth. He sends his people out to represent him and to be salt and to be light. It's an evidence of his grace in this part of the story. Here's a better evidence. God sent his son to die as a propitiation for the nations. Romans chapter 3, 
No offense to the book of Jeremiah. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26 may be the most important paragraph that's ever been written in human history. When you come to Romans 3, you are wrestling with the concept of God being just and righteous as he judges and punishes the nations. And Paul has laid it out in the book of Romans that all of us are sinful, wicked, depraved people. There is none righteous, no, not one. And you're left wondering, how in the world can the just, righteous God also be merciful to sinners? And the answer to that question is the ultimate Sunday school answer, Jesus. That's how. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In the context of Romans 3, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Anyone, all that believe, Jew, Gentile, Egyptian, Babylonian, Elamite, Edomite, it doesn't matter. For all who believe, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say this. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show God's righteousness. Remember we said God is righteous in his dealings with the nations. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that it did was it showed that God was righteous because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He did not always punish sin immediately the way that he could have punished it. There was this passing over that left you wondering, is he really righteous if he just ignores all of that sin? It showed his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. Jeremiah 46 to 51, God is just and righteous in his dealings with the nations. And the cross proves that all of these things are true. He is righteous, he is just, and he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the great enigma that runs all the way through the Old Testament. God is just and righteous and holy and he will punish sin. He will not leave it unpunished. Yet he's merciful and he's kind and he's patient and he's abounding in steadfast love. Which one is he? And it's only when you come to the cross that you realize he's all of it. He's all of it. Sin was punished at the cross. Jesus provides righteousness and redemption to the nations. Righteousness, not through the law, not through your own obedience, but a gift of his righteousness for those who have faith. He redeems us. How? By dying our death, by dying as our substitute, by spilling his blood to purchase us at the cross. Righteousness in redemption so that God is shown to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He's not ignored sin. He punished it fully and finally at the cross which allows him, without compromising his righteousness or his justice, allows him to be the justifier, not of those who are good, but Jew, Gentile, sinful people who will put their faith in Jesus. You understand, this is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
we're reminding ourselves when we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we're reminding ourselves that God is just and righteous, perfectly so. And he's also gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love for sinful people. And we understand that all of those things are true about him. There is no contradiction because we see it at the cross where Jesus dies as a propitiation. He dies to satisfy the wrath of God. God's anger towards sin is poured out on Jesus at the cross. He's just. And in turn, he's the justifier. Not of those of us who are good, but of those of us who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things we remember. These are the things we give thanks for when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to give thanks for what God has done in saving us through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus, we ask that you not participate in the Lord's Supper, and we encourage you, we beg you to think about acknowledging your sin before the holy God and putting your faith, not in your own goodness, your own obedience, but putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd love to visit with you about that, talk to you about that. For those of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give you just a moment to prepare your heart and your mind. It's not a moment for you to think, have I been good enough in the last week? You haven't. There's an opportunity for you to thank God for what he's done for you in sending his son Jesus Christ to die your death. So you take a moment to pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.